Hello, Daniel Kachimbona listeners. I am so excited to bring you season four of Radio Kachimbona. Radio Kachimbona is an abolitionist, as in abolish the prison industrial complex and abolish ICE and borders, and a critical race theory podcast that's going to bring you the leftist breakdowns of all the law and politics that you need to stay on top of. My favorite segment of the podcast is the Lit Review, which is where I bring on the baddest women of color to talk about timely texts over a glass of wine or two. (laughs) I am a full-time lawyer, and I also am the producer, host, and founder of this podcast. Truly, the audio editing alone is a full-time job in and of itself. And really, the only way that I'm able to get by with the support that I need is with the patrons. Thank you so much to the Lit Review patrons. They are folks who contribute either $5 or $10 a month and get exclusive Lit Reviews and interviews. $10 patrons receive a new amazing interview every week and the $5 patrons get it every two weeks and I'm also going to be including some very exciting additions to the Patreon including a Spanish language happy hour where I'm going to break down the most relevant border and immigration news that you need to know in Spanish and will also just be a platform for us to practice our Spanish because you know I've been having a little bit of trouble with the Telemundo interviews you know what I mean and I think I can only have one me siento muy excited moment before it's like time to crack down and get down these law policy specific jargony words in Spanish so that I can more effectively communicate with folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the newest patrons, Joshua and Adri. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to support the podcast, but don't have the monetary means to do so right now, another amazing way to help the podcast is to like, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with visibility, and I actually haven't had a review all of 2021, which makes me cry. So please, 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 if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and leave a reading and review. You can also follow and continue the very important conversations that we're having on the podcast through social media. You can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm super excited to bring you this next interview with Salvi Professor of Berkeley Law, Ian Haney Lopez, to talk about his book, Merge Left. The book is a is a reflection, a contemplation on how we can move forward in a post-Trumpian world and obtain and pass laws and policies that can that will result in radical economic redistribution and equity, while also dealing with the fact that political elites have very successfully crafted a racial narrative that influences poor whites to align themselves against their own class interests, as in they're all the temporarily embarrassed millionaires that will one day be able to have the success of the white ruling class. And his book is is an attempt to find a way forward and contains a study, uh, a messaging study that came out with really interesting results about how people, how and why people receive 
different messages about race in distinct ways. And we also got into the, the conversation that had been dominating season three of Radio Cachimbona, which was, is Latinx a race? No, it is not a race. It is, and yet it is this identifier, this identity marker that can provide very productive, a very productive site to organize with each other and for each other because of the ways in which people who have migrated from South to North from Latin America to the U.S. have been racialized, essentialized, homogenized, and oppressed, all under this rubric of Latinx. And that came up as well because that is obviously incredibly important to this conversation. I recorded this a bit a few months ago, and now with the support of the patrons, I have been able to unlock it for y'all. And I just really hope that you enjoy this first episode of season four because I am so excited for y'all to hear about the rest, for you to hear the rest of the episodes that I have been recording for y'all. And trust me, this is just the start of this conversation. So sit back and enjoy. And I hope you all love the podcast. Bye. So hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited to have Berkeley Law Professor Ian Haney Lopez here today to talk about his most recent book, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. And we, it's funny because after the events of January 6th, I feel like we, <laughs> we have so much to talk about with the foundation of your book starting this conversation. And so... To start, I wanted to ask, um, in the 2020 election results showed that there's an increased percentage of Latinx voters who voted for Trump. And as we know, and as you've talked about in your project, Project Juntos, Latinx is not a race and white Latinxes benefit a significant amount from their whiteness. So first, how do you understand the increase of Latinx support for Trump in 2020? And second, is it possible that the contours of U.S. whiteness have shifted or will shift to include light-skinned or white Latinxes who will fall into the trap of white supremacy by comparing their lot in life to Black and Indigenous Latinxes and feel content? So luckily, there's not that much to that question. So I can just, you know, there's so many different aspects to what you've just asked. So um, first, uh, delighted to join you. This is this is uh, this is great. Let's just start with a conversation first about Latinos and about Trumpism. So and, and let's start with Trumpism. I think Trumpism, what we're calling Trumpism, is something that Republicans have been doing for 50 years, which is campaigning through rhetoric that is designed to trigger anxiety about darker, even just darker skinned people. Um, it, it, it rests on racist stereotypes about 
dark-skinned people being criminal and violent or lazy and ripping off the system. Um, so if you think mm -hmm. of, of phrases like welfare queen, thug, super predator, illegal alien, on their surface, those terms don't have any, don't specifically reference race. Mm -hmm. But they make sense only in terms of the mm -hmm. deeper racist stereotypes that they trigger, the the super predator, which you know triggers this unconscious stereotype of a young African American teenager, or the illegal alien mm -hmm. who triggers a stereotype of Latinos crossing the border. And again, it it does that in a way that relies on the unconscious absorption of these racist stereotypes because the language itself is race neutral. So, you know, that that's a political tactic that the right has been using for 50 years. Trump really embraced it, made it central to his persona, the persona that he enacted on the campaign trail. Let me pivot, pivot for a second to Latinos. Are Latinos a race? Um, if by that we mean are Latinos a biologically bounded group in a way that we recognize other races to be, then the answer is no, they're not a race. But then neither is any other race. Whites aren't a biologically bounded group. They're socially constituted. African-Americans, you mm -hmm. know, as you travel from North Africa or even Southern Italy exactly. or Southern Spain across mm -hmm. North Africa, right? Because the boundaries of Africa used to include everything up to the Pyrenees, right? In the racial imagination of Europe, which by the mm -hmm. way, just fun fact, no better way to piss off Spaniards than to suggest that Spain is really part of Africa because mm -hmm. they were occupied by Africa for 700 years. So they're very sensitive about it. Um, so Races are always socially constituted. Well, once we mm -hmm. come back to that understanding of race and then mm -hmm. we ask anew the question, are Latinos a race? I'd say Latinos are a race. I'd say Latinos are being socially constituted as a race through the targeting of Latinos using racist stereotypes about us. Now, is, is it complicated by the fact that that we have antecedents in many different um, uh, continents. Sure, is it complicated by the fact that we come in all sorts of colors? Sure, but then you think about, for example, African-Americans, all sorts of colors, all sorts of uh, cultures, all sorts of regional variation. You know, is it enough that they're identified with a single continent? I mean, in there, I'd say, hey, in, in the United Kingdom, Black isn't confined just to people from the African continent. It's applied to people from Pakistan and Bangladesh as well. Again, races are constituted through social practices. And one of the one of the things that's happening in the United States is we're in the midst of an intensification of the of the cultural beliefs mm -hmm. that Latinos are a non-white and inferior race. And now we might get to this question of like, 
okay, so then why are, did so many Latinos vote for Trumpism? You know, here's here's Donald Trump saying you got to worry about dark-skinned people, um, you know, stand with good, innocent, hardworking, tax-paying, and implicitly white people. And then you've got Latinos as a group, and we're being, and, and the right Trump is racializing us, he's attacking us, he's saying we're negative, that we're inferior, that we're rapists and drug dealers mm -hmm. and violent and use knives because we're cruel and all of that. And then you get a set of Latinos who say, no, that's not me, that's my neighbor. If, if, if the choice is understand myself as part of the group that is reviled and despised in this country, right. or understand right. myself as someone who's decent and hardworking and part of the mainstream, and maybe I'm not totally seen that way right now, but I'm on my way and my kids are on their way, that's 30% of Latinos. That, I think that's what's happening. So it's not, you know, it's it's 30% of Latinos are responding to an ideology of whiteness that says mm -hmm. lighter's better, darker's worse, and saying, okay, if I have a plausible claim to be part of the group that's valued, that's how I'm going to orient myself. That's how I'm going to vote. Mm -hmm. Right. I think... I would just I would push back on Latinx being a race because I I hear what you're saying. There is this archetypal, essentialized understanding of what a Latinx person is, a person who's brown skinned. But if we understand Latinx to be anybody who's living in the U.S. who has some kind of ancestral ties to Latin America, then we can't say that Latinx is a race because in Latin America, there is still white supremacy operating. There are white Latin Americans who hold, by and large, hold positions of power over black and indigenous folks in the same way that um, black and indigenous folks are subjugated in the US. And to say Latinx is a race, I think also is really important to talk about in the realm of affirmative action, you know, to be controversial here. <laughs> I think the fact that there is this amorphousness around how to define Latinx has allowed a lot of white Latinxes to get admission into Stanford Law School <laughs> in particular. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I agree with that. But for for instance, for instance, and I might say as a law professor, um, a, a lot of them have then presented themselves as Latinos in terms of diversifying the academy when in fact they add virtually no diversity <laughs> at all. But let, let's, let's separate out that point for a second. Let's come back to this idea that Latinos aren't a race because Latinos mm -hmm. aren't a race in Latin America. But I would say African-Americans by that test wouldn't be a race because they're not African-Americans as a race in Africa. I mean, when, once you go to Nigeria or, or South Africa, or Namibia, any of those countries, it ceases to make sociological sense to talk about the African race. It's other than as a colonial project. You, you've got lots of different people, different groups tied together by, by ancestry, by language, by culture, um, roughly tied together, maybe forced together by national boundary. Yeah. The idea of a black race, it's simply it's, it's incongruous if you're in Africa. So I, I get it that it wouldn't make sense to say, 
Latinos are a race in, in Chile or Argentina or Peru in the same way that Latinos are a race in the United States, but that's simply to recognize races are socially produced. That means they're bound by place, by time, by context, right? And I, and I would say in the United States, it's very important to see Latinos as a race, not in the sense of being monolithic mm -hmm. and not in the sense that the, that the racial identity of Latinos is fixed and stable and, and, and generally accepted, right? But rather in the sense of a group that at least since the 1830s has been seen culturally, politically, economically, and legally as foreign, mm -hmm. inferior, and racialized, as uh, having an identity, an inferior identity that is rooted mm -hmm. in nature. That's been happening since the 1830s, and it's, and it's happening again now in, from, I mean, all of Donald Trump, but like 2021, this is, right? So it, it's in that sense that we're a race. Segwaying to affirmative action, I would say, it's in that sense that I think affirmative action for Latinos is really important. Mm. I think that, you know, when I think about one of the things that, that astounds me or, or that I recognize is, listen, I grew up in Hawaii where there are very few Latinos. Mm. And that meant that I didn't run into the prejudice that targets Latinos every day until I was already pretty well formed. I was 18. I already had an accomplished academic track record. And even at 18, I was still just using my father's surname. So I was just Ian Haney um, or Ian Fidencio Haney because I had my grandfather's, my maternal grandfather's middle name. But it was in graduate school that I changed and started using Lopez so that people would understand that I was Latino. The mm -hmm. first paper you know, that I got back when I used the term Haney Lopez, the professor didn't even bother to grade it. And he just wrote on the, on the, on the cover page is English, your first language. Like all of a sudden I'd gone from being an A wow. student as Haney to be like literally unintelligible. And I, yeah. I often think to myself, would I have had the emotional and the mental fortitude to withstand stereotypes of intellectual inferiority if those had been imposed on me when I was four or five and then the rest of my life versus not encountering those stereotypes of intellectual inferiority until I was already a, a, right, a, at least a, a, a undergrad and, and really in, in, their, in their most vicious form, not until I was a grad student. That's what affirmative action is designed to do. It's designed to counteract ongoing practices of diminishment and, and um, um, uh, uh, the stereotyping and then the resultant stereotype threat that people experience. Now, when elite institutions like Stanford and Harvard and others turn around and say, we have affirmative action, but in fact, what they're doing is they're skimming the sort of the, the population for the, the kids least affected by racism, most able to function as white. Right. Then they've transformed affirmative action from right. something that actually promotes racial integration and repair of racism into something that's more an elite pretense 
diversity for the sake of a little bit of color, some different surnames in the classroom, but no real commitment either to fight racism socially or to confront racism internally. Because let's be mm -hmm. clear, this is one of the reasons these elite institutions made this shift and started taking the kids of the elite because when they were first practicing affirmative action in the in the 70s and 80s, they were getting a bunch of kids who'd seen the rough edges of racism and who came into these elite institutions and said, this is outrageous, the wealth, right. the privilege, that was me. the smugness. <laughs> yeah, the smugness of this institution. What are you doing? And, and, and the institutions responded by saying, we could change. Or we could just make sure students like you are very rare and, and aren't admitted and don't challenge right. us. Right, and right, lo, right. they took the second route. Wow, there's a lot there. <laughs> so given the white supremacist and patriarchal views that Trump represents, how do you understand the shift of white males? I think it was the lowest amount of white males voting for the Republican Party in decades. Why Why did that happen, do you think? I think that's such a great question. I think that, that both of these questions, the one that's asked about Latinos and now this one that asks about whites, are really pushing us to to think about race in a more complex way and to not think about race in terms of categories of people, but to think about race right. in terms of belief systems. So if you think about race in categorical terms, you're like, wait a minute, Latinos were under attack and yet 30% of Latinos voted for Trump. How could that be? Wait a minute, Trump was appealing to whites and yet he lost a number of whites, 40% voted against them. How could that be? It's, it's hard to figure that out if it, the mental picture you're drawing on is races, categories of people, and these categories of people are largely monolithic in what they believe and how they mm -hmm. act. That turns out not to be true. But right. that, and then, yeah. and, and that's why your book proved. Yeah. And then, but what, what's, been, what's been really astounding to me is after the elections, a lot of pundits have turned around and said, oh, wow, there was variety in how Latinos reacted. Therefore, race is irrelevant. <laughs> and it's like, no, racial categories are not monoliths. Race is still incredibly relevant. I don't, I don't know how anybody can look at what Trump's doing and then say, well, race is irrelevant. Right. And the other thing that I always oh, think right. hilarious is mm -hmm. like when, when people say to me, well, race is irrelevant because 30 percent of Latinos voted for Trump. I'm like 40 percent of whites voted for Biden. Does that mean whites don't exist either? And they're like, oh, oh no, wait a minute. <laughs> right. All of these pundits are white. They want to think that white is a group. It matters somehow. But they also want to accommodate, to have a sufficiently complex view of whites to allow whites to interact with race in many different ways. Cool, because Latinos do too. And the thing here is what we're really trying to understand is how people are interacting with racism as a set of ideas. And, and to, to put a more particular name on right. it, how people are interacting with whiteness. Whiteness as the claim mm -hmm. that being white or light makes one by nature superior to those who are dark or or at least darker right and now 
it turns out a lot of Latinos are saying, yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm going to make a claim to be better by being lighter. Yeah. And it's not just Latinos. In, in the context of African-Americans, African-Americans talk a lot about critically and appropriately so uh, more and more about respectability politics. Respectability politics is an appeal yes. to whiteness, mm-hmm. right? It, uh, with, with, uh, with a color mm-hmm. claim 100%. also there, right? Lighter's better in the African-American community. So, so what we see immediately is those who yeah. might be in the category of people of color, very many of them are also attracted to the ideology of whiteness. And now on the flip side, many people who fall within the category of being white people repudiate whiteness as a way to organize their social and political mm-hmm. lives. They're like, I don't want to be part of a system that believes that lighter is better, that that believes that I deserve to be protected by the police and I deserve health care, but other people should be brutalized by the police and should get no access to hospitals. I don't want that, right? So that's the that's the point. Focus on, not on categories of people, but on how people are interacting with whiteness. Are they susceptible to the idea yeah. that they should organize their world social and political in terms of a hierarchy of white over non-white? Or can we move them mm-hmm. to saying, that's wrong, that's immoral, and not only that, but it's disastrous for my family and my society. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I I will say that I was a bit confused by the percentage of I think so something like 30% of the people of color that were surveyed in the book were a part of the conservative base and would always react negatively to redistributive policies that mentioned race, but also just any mention of race at all, it seemed to um, uh, anger these people. And it's hard to uh, understand because as a person of color who, as a woman of color who's really dedicated to racial justice and redistributive policies, and I I feel like I do this for myself, my family, and people who I see myself in community with, it's just, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult for me to get into that headspace and understand, but I will say actually since moving to Arizona, where something like 40% of the border patrol is Mexican American. And we're actually, there's just a lot of Latinx people in law enforcement here. I mean, I felt profiled here for the first time in my life. I'm light skinned and I lived in the Bay Area and I will say I learned my privilege from living there and then moving to Arizona because I was profiled here and by Latino cops. And so it's been kind of a recurring lesson for me. And then reading this in the book was kind of, you know, it's like codified by research. Um, yeah. So so I would say, and maybe you've encountered this in your own family. Certainly I have in a lot of the Latinos I talk to, a lot of the Latino progressives, activists, kind of this really resonates with them because this is about their own families too. But imagine you're, you're, you're in a society that is, polarized between white as decent, hardworking, deserving, complex, fully human, and black, which is supposedly, Mm -hmm. again, all these are the stereotypes, right? That is 
violent and irrational and, and um, uh, lazy and threatening and law-breaking. And now you, you kind of say, where do I fit? And where do my children fit? And if I'm part of the black group, then am I bad? And if I know I'm not bad, am I nevertheless seen as bad by society? Will I never be able to make it? Or, and I think this is the way a lot of people think too, will my kids not be able to make it here? And especially if they're immigrants, have I just sacrificed everything, sacrificed my family, come here to a place that is so hard? Am I doing all of this to bring my children to a country that hates them? Right. And a lot of people faced with this, sort of this, this, this deep, threatening dilemma, say, I want to prove I'm, I'm, I'm part of the good ones. I want to. I want to prove that I deserve to be here. I want to. I, I want to make sure that my kids can live the American dream and can be whoever they want. And partly that requires that I reject the idea that this is a this is a country stratified by racism. And I can look and I can see that black people are struggling, but maybe they are bad. Mm -hmm. And I can see that mm -hmm. some of my neighbors are struggling. Maybe they're bad too. Maybe if I just mm -hmm. insist on being good, working hard, up by the bootstraps, and I don't listen to the whining and the complaining, and I never engage in the protesting that all of those people are engaging in, maybe I'm going to make it. Maybe my kids can make it. That's most of our families, right? And it, and it kind of on a... Yeah, definitely. And I don't... I don't think that most people are having this conversation as consciously, as self-consciously or as explicitly as I just laid it out. I think that these, these internal conversations about where do I fit, how am I seen, what's good for my family, I think for most people it's, you know, it's, it, it's kind of this motivated reasoning that's, that's, that's unconscious and not seen, not, right? And, and Part of okay, so I think that's what's going on now. Think about like you and I as progressive activists who are quite attuned to the power of racism in our society. Isn't a lot of what we do trying to get people to see what they didn't really want to see, right? Like I've you know teaching race and American yeah. law. I've been doing this for years, and I have to suspect with your podcast, part of your podcast is consciousness raising yeah definitely 100%. podcast is saying to your audience here's a framework for you to understand how deeply racist this country is mm -hmm. where a lot of your audience is like i don't really think of it that way i i that's 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 a hard blow but if you can amass enough evidence maybe they'll say you're right but it's what we're asking communities of color to do is to recognize that they live in a society that views them with fear and hatred. Nobody wants to understand that about themselves. Right. Yeah. Right. And so if, mm -hmm. if some, if, if, if other people in our community say, don't talk to me about that racism crap, enough with your protesting, quit being un-American. I don't want to hear it. They're defending themselves. 
right? That, that That's why they can be so mad. They're defending themselves from having to see something which is deeply, deeply painful, right? The, the, that, that one is despised and reviled by the, the most empowered members of the community. That's tough. Right. Yeah, that has actually that's been a very this the issue of anti-blackness in the Latinx community has been a theme on my podcast since the very beginning. And this season I had my friend Chris come on who is exploring 19th century Latinidad and um is he um through the archives was able to find evidence of these two indigenous Salvadorans who were forcibly sold into like a Barnum and Bailey-esque freak show circuit that traveled throughout the U.S. and even to England, you know, before the royalty who basically just ogled at them in the way that, that white people were ogling at colonized subjects during that time period, during that like World Fair time period. And he said that even in the way that things were things were written about the these two subjects and also pictures he he is arguing that latinidad has always been used as kind of as positioning itself in between blackness and the white power structure and that this goes back to like the 1830s <laughs> and i think it's really important to recognize that because i think it's the the way that you described it is um of thinking of people not as like biological categories but thinking about how they orient themselves to whiteness is super important because that that is exactly like i think you know some people are are talking about canceling latinx as a term and i have said that a few times because i feel more comfortable identifying as central american because i think that um in, in my experiences in Latinx spaces, I have always felt like I needed to assert my specific history as a Salvadoran American person because it's been erased from, and, and Latinidad has historically been very Mexican focused and has excluded black and indigenous people from, from Latinidad. But I think it can still be worth saving. And I appreciate what you're saying also about how we need to talk about how Latinx is a race in that there are a group of people who are surveilled and policed and jailed because of how they're looked at. I think indigenous doesn't cover it because there's so many, there's been so many efforts across Latin America to erase indigenous identity and culture. I know I'm talking about Salvador in particular. So indigenous doesn't cover, I think, the group of people who are racialized. Not everybody who's racialized as as a brown skin Latino identifies as indigenous. Um, and so I think mm -hmm. it's this this project. I think is still worth saving because, but I think it needs to take on an explicitly political valence, like how Chicano was explicitly political was explicitly political. Because right now, you know, otherwise we get we get the mess of you know Susan with a great grandmother who was born in Mexico and who just wants to go work at the firm is joining is getting you know getting this benefit of affirmative yes. action which as you say was meant to repair past injustice I, I agree mm -hmm. yeah yeah I I think I think to think of Latinx Latinidad Latino racial identity as a political identity 
is exactly right because that's all it is. Right, 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 right. But for the fact that there's this long history and ongoing practices of demeaning Latinos as a racially inferior group, we wouldn't all be one group. We're all one group in the context of the United States with historical, political, social, economic efforts to reduce us to a caricature, to reduce us to an inferior racial group. And that ends up hiding, uh, obscuring the, the, the complexity of who we are as, as individuals yeah. and also the many, the many different groups that are folded into it, right? Now, because this new, well, new from the 1830s, this racial group of Latinos is so large, uh, right? That 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 um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're 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 talking um, one out of every eight mm-hmm. people in the country now. Of course, there's tremendous variety within that, and of course, those of us who are Latino ourselves are playing a role in constructing this racial identity. So yeah, there's a focus mm-hmm. on Mexicanos or, or, or being of Mexican descent, because that's mm-hmm. 60 plus percent of Latinos. Yes, there's anti-blackness, partly because mm-hmm. there's anti-blackness that we brought with us from Latin America, partly because we're in a deeply racist anti-black culture and being anti-black is a route to inclusion in the white mainstream, right? So yes, there's an erasure of smaller groups. Yeah, all of that stuff's going on. Coming coming back to this question of affirmative action, I wanna use that as a segue to articulating a different vision of of race, one that I I think might, I know is actually, more comfortable both to people of color and to whites. So what is the point of affirmative action? One point of it is repair past practices. Uh, Another point of it is Mm -hmm. respond to ameliorate, uh, counterbalance ongoing racism. And I think that's very important too. And on, on both of those counts, you know, the sort of Susan, whose grandmother was from Chile, right? You're like, you weren't caught up in these past practices. You haven't endured con- contemporary discrimination. So, but yeah. the other really important thing about affirmative action is it is designed to promote integration, mm-hmm. designed to promote cross racial familiarity, even cross racial solidarity. We've lost that understanding of affirmative action, but the watchword for the civil rights movement from the 1940s through the 1960s was integration. And the the mechanism for that was affirmative action to put people together on an equal footing with institutional support in pursuit of common goals. That's 
that that's the insight of integration. And why is integration so important? Integration is so important partly because it reveals racism to be a lie, an injurious myth. But integration is even more important so that we can stop fearing each other and start taking care of each other. And this is the, this is the, the pivot, the segue that I want to make. What has happened to the United States over the last 50 years? Well, through the long New Deal, whites were convinced from the 30s through the 60s to take care of each other, meaning other whites, to not make distinctions between European groups, not discriminate against Jews and Catholics and right. Southern and Eastern Europeans, but to see themselves as part of a common American project. And this common American project empowered government to help build routes of upward mobility to the middle class. At the moment when the civil rights movement was strong enough to say, we want those routes of upward mobility to be open to African-Americans and Latinos as well, the reactionary right came in and said, hey, good white people, these programs that you used to think of as building the middle class, they're actually programs that take away from you and give to undeserving minorities. Turn against government. Turn against your neighbor. The biggest threat in your life comes from your, from your neighbor. They're lazy. They're threatening. They're trying to take the little tiny piece of the pie that you have. Fear your neighbor. Build walls. That's how democracies fail. That's 2020. This is 2021. This is precisely where we are. Our society, our democracy is at risk of collapsing into white nationalist formed populist authoritarianism because for 50 years, the right has been promoting the lie of whiteness, saying, fear those who are darker. They're lazy. They're dangerous. You're innocent. You're hardworking. Fear also the government that wants to provide routes of upward mobility, the government that wants to regulate the marketplace, the government that, uh, that pursues affirmative action, that promotes integration, they're taking away from good people and giving to bad people, right? And so we, we need to embrace affirmative action. We need to embrace integration, again, partly as a remedy for racism, but perhaps mm -hmm. at this point, primarily as a way to save our society, as a way to build solidarity within our society in a way that allows us to protect democracy and to mm -hmm. make sure the government starts working for the broad middle again and not for the corporations and the very rich. In other words, and I'll just, I'll just you know, to put a point on it, Integration is for everybody in society, including those who think they are light or white. It's actually the pragmatic way that all of us come together and build political power with each other to take care of our families and those of everybody else's. And, and the reason I say, and in other words, you don't, in order to get people to commit to integration and racial justice, you don't have to convince them that they are the victims of racism. You need to show them that we're all the victims of intentional division and manipulation, and that all of us 
wherever you think you fit in this spectrum of humanity, wherever you think you fit, all of us lose when people organize their political lives in terms of the lies of white. A part of your argument is <clears throat> based on convergence theory, which is the idea that society's progression in terms of racial equity only occurs when there is some benefit to the majority white population. And you say that we need to convince the majority of white people that they that they too are manipulated by this kind of 1% hyper rich group of people that is mostly white and as such also provides great detriment to them but still there are already pre-existing inequalities between racial groups and if we have this kind of rising tide for all boats approach where white people who already have generational wealth get their boats risen and then latinx people then black folks does that mean that we're not ever going to have equity yeah great question so interest convergence is this idea that's that's probably most closely associated with Derrick Bell. And, uh, it, it, and, and what Derrick Bell said is, look, yeah, you can convince a few whites to fight racism as a moral matter, but at the end of the day, there won't be real progress. There isn't real progress in fighting racism unless there's also an interest that's served for powerful segments of the white community, not all whites, but powerful segments of the white community. And he gave as an example, the civil war and then and the, the Northern interest in an economic system that wasn't dominated by a plantation class. He gave as an example, Brown versus Board mm -hmm. of Education. And he said, even here, integration was a part of the Cold War propaganda battle with the Soviet Union, right? So he's saying, yes, you get these moments of dramatic advance towards racial justice, but only when there's a convergence between the interests of people of color fighting for racial justice and powerful segments of the white community. Now, from there, he went on to say, and racism is basically in the interests of whites because it is a white over non-white hierarchy and social hierarchies benefit the superordinated group, the superior group, even to the, you know, to the extent that they that they harm the subordinated, the inferior group, racism's a permanent feature of American life. So he went from interest convergence to, and since racism's basically in the interest of whites, racism's a permanent feature of American life. I think what I'm saying is, well, one, I used to think Bell was right. But two, I no longer think so because I think I've shifted my understanding mm -hmm. of what racism is at root. Right. Like Bell was right. operating from a perspective that racism at root was a white over non-white hierarchy. And I am operating from a perspective now that says racism at root is class warfare waged by encouraging people to believe in a hierarchy of white over non-white. And it's always been that. That's 
That's slavery. Mm. Slavery was the plantation class breaking the connection between unfree labor from Africa and unfree labor from Europe by saying, well, unfree labor from Africa shall be reduced to slavery because they're naturally inferior. And unfree labor from, from Europe shall now never be slaves, though they shall remain poor and exploited. But hey, have some whiteness. Right. So that was it's that's always been that way. Mm-hmm. That's what it's been for the last 50 years. Nobody better yeah. personifies this insight than Donald Trump. He doesn't give a shit about white people. He only cares about himself as the billionaire, and he cares about his billionaire buddies and the and you know whoever can loan him millions. And right, he, Donald Trump is hyper-conscious about the interests of himself as a very, very rich person and all the other rich people that he needs around him so that he can stay rich and stay powerful. And his weapon for doing so? Promoting the belief Mm -hmm. that whites are better and under threat from these dangerous and undeserving others. Okay. If that's what's really going on with racism, that it's class war waged through the promotion of cultural beliefs in racial hierarchy, then all of a sudden interest convergence looks different. Definitely. Because now interest convergence says the interests of whites might sometimes be in building cross-racial solidarity to make sure that society actually and government works for all of us and not just for the very rich. In other words, we might be able to convince whites and Mm -hmm. people who are lighter, people who aspire to whiteness, right? Because I want to be clear, we're also talking about a lot of people of color. We can reach them by saying, your best future depends on building power across racial divisions so that you can take government back from the greedy rich. That's your best life. And, and so, yes, you should fight racism because it's a moral evil, but you should also fight racism because pragmatically it's mm-hmm. the best way to get to, get to where you want to go. Now, just let me just finish here because I want to get to your question. This is not a colorblind the rising tide lifts all boats sort of proposition. In fact, what it's saying is the proximate requirement for taking care of our families is cross-racial solidarity. Cross-racial solidarity must be genuine. We must see each other as our necessary allies. And when you see others as necessary allies, You don't say, and therefore we're going to ignore division, therefore we're going to ignore our different histories, therefore, you know, da da da. Rather, you say, now that I see that we're, that that you're my needed ally, we've got to make sure that this is a movement that is genuine. And a genuine movement for cross racial solidarity has to engage in repair, has to promote integration, right? And so to bring back in the conversation about affirmative action, Affirmative action is precisely an effort. To, I mean, in, in the context of promoting integration, it is an effort to repair the damage done so that people can be brought into, institu- into institutions that would otherwise perpetuate inequality and injustice from the past, right? So um, a movement for cross-racial solidarity is the most promising route towards racial equity. Because now 
the commitment to racial equity is a commitment shared by a majority and even a supermajority of all Americans, even those who, if they were only thinking about it in terms of equity and not in terms of solidarity, might say to themselves, that's not my interest. I'm doing okay in this racial hierarchy. Right. I, I was kind of heartened to see, and also like, upon thinking about it more, it made sense to me that there was such a large group of persuadables in your study who had contradictory views about race because, yeah, actually the vast majority of people did not take a bunch of ethnic studies classes in undergrad and did not continue to read critical race theory in law school and have not devoted their whole academic career to thinking about race in the American legal system. And so they kind of absorb piecemeal from media and it makes sense that I, I guess I was I was heartened to see that with a coherent message they could be persuaded into being pro-redistributive policies. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think that's a really important point. Progressives have gotten into the habit of condemning people sympathetic to Trump as bigots. And in that sort of imagery, those people, the, the Trump supporters, but even the people who are sympathetic to his message, they have a, a, a sort of a single orientation towards race. They're racist, they're white supremacists, they're bigots. I think that's true of somewhere between 4 and 8% of Americans, which is terrible, which is terrible. But that's not the 60% of whites who voted for Trump. The great majority of Americans are, are, fall into this very broad middle that toggles back and forth between racist-informed ideas, illegal aliens are threatening, threatening the country, we've got to crack down on Muslim terrorists, right? Racist-informed ideas and racially egalitarian values. You shouldn't be racist. Racism is wrong. You shouldn't judge people by the color of their skin. Everybody deserves a decent chance. They're, they're bouncing back and forth between them. And the evil genius of the right has been to recognize that they can reach a majority of Americans by scaring the hell out of them through appeals to these racist beliefs. And that means that what the rest of us need to do, what progressives right. needs to do, is they need to say, well, people already hold two beliefs. And we need to show people that it's actually their racially egalitarian values that are right. the best way for people to take care of their own families. Right. And and that's what's that's what's really encouraging. When you speak to people about their racially egalitarian values, not simply in moral language, don't be racist, and not in condemnatory language, don't be a bigot, but when you speak to people in, about their racially egalitarian values in pragmatic terms, saying we're being divided, when you come together across differences, you can provide for your own family, that is the most powerful most popular political message available right now. People already already believe they should they shouldn't be racist. They already believe they should make connections with others who look different. And when you say to them, that's not just a value, 
that's actually a pragmatic response to divide and conquer politics by the very rich. People get it immediately and they say, yeah, that's who I want to be. That's how I want to move forward. Mm. So this is what you call in your book, the race class approach. Yes. Okay. So how does this approach allow us then to hold white people accountable for their racism? And because well, it's like, you're, you're telling them two messages. You're saying, you are a victim of this ideology in the sense that you were manipulated into thinking that you had a good lot in life when there's vast wealth inequality like that hasn't been seen and it's very unprecedented and also hold them to account when for their microaggressions and for um their generational wealth and i guess it depends on what you mean by hold them to account like if what you want to do is scold white people, is speak truth to power, is condemn them, I mean, okay, then then go do that. But if what you want to do is actually move society toward racial equality, toward racial justice, then you need whites to participate in some way, right? We as people of color, especially we progressive people of color who are serious about white racism simply do not have the power to move most of our most of society in our direction especially if what we've done is we've antagonized most of society and i mean white people but i also mean significant segments of our own communities right so all right um mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well let me try this a different way this is a better example I talk in Merge Left about meeting with the leaders of a trade union. And the leaders are almost all mm -hmm. white. Turns out there's three. Matt and Tom from Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I talked to Matt and Tom, but I actually, but I actually talked to a trade union, the, the leaders of, e of, of the, uh, the state leaders, so 50 of them. I think three of them are Latino by their last names, but you wouldn't have known it but for their surnames, right? Looking around the table, I'm looking at 50 big mm -hmm. white guys. And they're looking yeah. at me, you know, this skinny Latino professor, and they know that that the, that the union leadership has committed to their spending a day with me, and they're pissed off. They don't, right? They don't want to be lectured about white yeah. racism. And, you know, things start badly. But instead of lecturing them about white racism, I talk to them about what's happened to their union and the way in which mm. a lot of their union members are voting for politicians who are busy dismantling the union. And it could be like Scott Walker in Wisconsin, or it could be like Donald Trump himself. These are very anti-union politicians they're electing. And I say, you know, the reason they're doing that is not because they don't understand economics. You guys are all doing as much as you can to provide training in economics. Unions are great at that. I said, it's because these politicians are appealing to them in terms of racist fears and stereotypes. And it's exactly the racism that is being, being energized by the right that is leading to your own union members voting for politicians who are destroying your union. And I, and I say to them, how many of you see a future for your children in your union? And these, they have union pride, right? They have a lot of pride in labor, a lot of pride in what mm -hmm. they've built. And, and none of them saw a future for their own children in their union. They knew their union was dying. And when I could get them to see that the union yeah. was dying, 
because its members were being mobilized to vote for whiteness. At that point, all of a sudden, the conversation broke open and they started saying, okay, what are our best practices for integration? How do we address unconscious racism? What is systemic racism, right? And like at the, at the start of the conversation, they were like, we don't know anything about those terms. We don't believe any of this. This is all bullshit, right? <laughs> to, to, to try and, you know, yeah. sort of summarize the key points here. If you say in order to get to racial equity, in order to build a commitment to racial equity, we need to scold white people about how terrible they are. You shouldn't be surprised when you can't actually get to racial equity that way because white people build walls and circle wagons and end up pretending they have no idea what you're talking about and that you're the problem and that you're divisive, right? Whereas if you come into a conversation with white folks and you say, look at what's happened to your own family. What do you see as a future for your children? No effective government to deal with a pandemic pensions destroyed, unions destroyed, wealth siphoned up into the economic stratosphere. The economy is is in its worst condition since the Great Depression and Wall Street's enjoying boom times. And you know why? Because we've been convinced to fear our neighbors because they have a different skin color, a different sexual orientation, a different religion, a different approach to gender. Meanwhile, the rich are laughing all the way to the bank. And all of a sudden you get people saying, well, that's right. I, 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 I need to build bridges. I need to build solidarity. I need to build power with others. Right? It's a very different approach. Um, in other words, in other words, I understand where a lot of the speak truth to power, hold white people to account, folks are coming from. Because I used to come from. I that used to be me. That was me for decades as a student and as a professor. And no longer? No longer, no longer. And the reason is because I used to be operating from a mindset that said racism is fundamentally white over non-whites. White people are always going to hold on to their privilege. Racism is a permanent feature of our society. And the best I can do, the most I can accomplish is to condemn white folks. To, 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 to hold in the faces of white folks, to whatever extent I can, the magnitude of their sins. But I had no real hope of actually helping to build a racially egalitarian society. But over the last 10 years, as I've shifted and I'm like, oh yeah, racism's a weapon of the rich. And it, it, as a weapon of the rich, it promotes racist hierarchy. Whites are advantaged by that hierarchy relative to people of color, but they're they're broken by it relative to the very rich who are increasingly reshape society in the marketplace and, and law so that it only serves them. Mm-hmm. That's made me much more willing to say, wow, if I could get white folks to realize that cross-racial solidarity is the best way forward for them, And if I could get racial justice activists to realize that we might be able to build enough political power to take care of communities of color, to end systematic state violence against communities of color, and to actually gain governmental resources for repair, we might be able to do that. 
if we build political power with whites, maybe that's a better route because then there's a genuine possibility of building a racially egalitarian society, right? And, and that's made the whole difference. When I was in the mindset of racism's permanent, I was angry, I was, you know, sort of confrontational. The best I thought I could do was condemn people. But now I'm like, actually, we could build enough political power to create a racially egalitarian society that takes care of all our all of our families, no matter what color we are, and to repair the damage done through racism. Now to get there, that's going to require hard work. It's going to require showing whites that racism hurts them too. It's going to require convincing people of color to find common cause with whites, where in the past that has been a disaster because so often whites have demanded common cause but the price has been ignore racism. Whereas here I'm saying, this is common cause rooted in rejecting racism and building racially a racially egalitarian movement. But if we could do that, we could actually achieve the dreams that we have for our communities, right? Communities that could thrive, communities that were protected from uh, violent policing, communities that are protected from the machinery of mass deportation, communities in which society and government invest in education, in water, and in infrastructure, and in routes of upward mobility, we might be able to do that. By telling white people that they're awful? No. By telling white people racism is a, is a weapon against all of us, and we need to build power together. I agree. I mean, guilt is not going to be a motivating reason for white people to engage in cross-racial solidarity. And I appreciate that your approach provides some kind of hope for people who are very distraught by the state of racism in the U.S. and the crumbling of this democracy. So I appreciate that. Um, those are actually all the questions that I had for you. Uh, do you feel like there's anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to address? No, I think this has been a great conversation. The only, I would I just add one thing, just a resource for people. So in addition to Merge Left, to try and make those ideas accessible and to lay them out and build upon them sequentially, I put together a, a series of 12 super short videos. People can watch all 12 of them in under 30 minutes. I put them together as a resource for individuals and organizations trying to understand how race has been weaponized and what this new fusion race class approach is like. The website is called raceclassacademy.com. So race-class-academy.com. I, I think if, 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 if people have enjoyed this conversation, if people have been provoked by it, if you want to know more, raceclassacademy.com and then watch the videos. I think it's a really good way of trying to grapple with what is ultimately a paradigm change. Shifting from thinking of racism as white over non-white in a way that makes many people of color feel overwhelmed and makes many whites feel like not their issue or maybe closet mm -hmm. helped by it to a vision mm -hmm. of racism as a weapon of the rich against all of us that depends on promoting the lie of white over non-white hierarchy. And that's a vision mm -hmm. that I think helps whites understand 
why they must fight racism and helps people of color understand why they're not alone in fighting racism, why they might be able to build common cause with a supermajority of all Americans to actually fight racism and rebuild a democracy and a society that actually takes care of all of our families, not bounded by color or sexual orientation or, right? And, and I want to just add all of that, sexual orientation, um, uh, religion, regional differences, every sort of social division that can be exploited, the right has exploited to convince us to fear our neighbors rather than the powerful rich rigging politics and the economy for themselves. What does that imply? Building broad social solidarity is a route to making sure government works for us in economic terms, but it's also the most promising route to building a society of dignity for all. And I, th and I think that that's, you know, if I, mm -hmm. I, I, I would end there. That's what we're talking about. That's the goal. <laughs> a government and yeah. an economy that takes sure. care of people in terms of the material necessities of life, but a society that also takes care of people in terms of ensuring dignity for all. Yeah, I think that's really great. And we can also link to the Race Class Academy in the show notes. So if people are curious, then they can go check it out. Uh, well, thank you so much, Professor Haney Lopez, for coming onto the podcast. This was a great reunion, and I hope to have you back on the podcast again. I'd love it, and wonderful seeing you again, Yvette. Take good care. Bye-bye.